out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the band titled The Prisoners, who I spoke to very recently. Well, the vocalist and guitarist and songwriter. It is the one and only Graham Day to find out more about life, love and poetry. They were part of the Medway scene, if there was such a scene, and also he's now in a band called Woggle, indeed, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on in the show. So you'll find out about his uh, dates with the prisoners and also in America. So anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting and casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Graham, it's over to you. Yeah, funny enough, uh, I'm just a year older than you, so I, I'm of the same era. And I, and I, well, I was more into punk, I think, as a sort of 14, 15 year old. Right. Uh, I just just about caught the tail end of that, um, and was lucky enough to, to sort of jump on the train up to London and um, and see a few bands at the Marquee and the Lyceum and that sort of thing. And I, but I think the first band that I saw that really blew my mind was the Jam. At, uh, I saw the jam supported by The Cure <laughs> at Canterbury University in 1979. Right. And there weren't that many people there. It was great. And I thought, God, this is a fantastic band. And then actually that popular, that's great. It's, it's my little secret. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they exploded into fame and, and all that and started playing at the Rainbow, and which and I sort of went off it by then because I don't like those kind of big venues. It's nice. I still prefer to go and see bands in, in little venues, you know, hot and sweaty and crowded and great atmosphere and all that. I can't stand those big sort of venues. And I don't like playing on them either, so... <laughs> Yes, it does. It does that, happen. That thing. It's like a memory, like a nostalgia thing for me. I think all my best musical memories are in in shitty little clubs, and and I and I think that's that's you know I, I'm much happier in playing in one of those venues as well. Yes, I could imagine because um, yeah, I mean I've been to some of those big gigs, and it's like I can say I was there, but I didn't really have the same experience I had when I was at the, say, the Norwich Arts Centre with a few hundred people, seeing a band who'd just been on John Peel and um, everyone was a little bit kind of discovering yeah. it and thinking you were the only person who knew the band. And So it was, yes. I know, it's great, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's the only way, really. And then you're a bit shocked because of the price of gigs now, which is quite freaky. So um, that's another subject, though, oh, isn't God, it? Yeah. So then did, mm. you, did you have a kind of, did, were your parents at all musical? Did they give you any kind of, uh, kind of not guidance, but were they... A, of an influence at all funnily enough the opposite <laughs> they didn't really like me doing it because um and i yeah i had a few sort of run-ins with my with my dad particularly when i was sort of 15 16 he really didn't want me to be in a band he wanted me to knuckle down at school and and go on to university and all that and i really didn't i i all i wanted to do was be in in the band which was the prisoners at the time yes um we'd started playing some gigs in in europe uh, when we were still at school, and, and that was all I wanted to do. So, and I had I had a I had to leave school quite early because I started doing A levels, but I, I really didn't want to be there. And uh, the headmaster, I remember, called me into the office and said, "This is pointless, you being a you know, we don't want you back next year." So I didn't finish my A levels. Blimey! I, I got a, a couple of rubbish jobs, and and we toured with the band for a good few years. 
Yes, it does. I feel I got fed up with that. So, <laughs> yeah. Did you? Because I had an I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he he had a massive influence. A, he was very good at sport, and I was keen on sport as well. But also, he then got into that world that was prog rock of you know sweet, not sweet, definitely not mm. sweet. But yes, and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and 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 the solo work of Rick Wakeman yeah. and people like that. Did you have any older brothers or yeah. sisters that gave you a, a sort of any, no, not at all. No, none at all. No, nothing at all. Uh, I mean, I, I was very, you know, I was really into sport as well when I was younger, and and um, you know that that was, my dad was really sporty, and and that and he was really chuffed. You know, I was in the rugby team at school and all that sort of thing. And then when I discovered music, I kind of knocked that all on the head and re- had really big run-ins with with the. Um, the PE teachers and all that who just thought, hang on a minute, what's happened to this boy? You know, he, <laughs> he was, you know, really into rugby and all of a sudden he's now turned into some kind of weirdo who doesn't, <laughs> you know, doesn't want to turn up to school, doesn't want to play in the rugby team anymore. And no, I didn't have any influences at home at all like that. I think it was all just people that I bumped into around Rochester and Chatham uh, thinking, you know, they look pretty cool, and they, they'd been discovering the, the pop rivets that were playing around with Billy and, and Bruce was a big influence on me in those days. And from there, I sort of, you know, listened because they were older. I think that was my influence because the milkshakes and the pop rivets, that them lot were about four or five years older than us. And uh, so they kind of took us under their wing when we were really younger and, and sort of introduced us to all the influences of punk. So I, I was sort of into punk and they said, yeah, but this is where it comes from. This is it comes from the 60s and, you know, earlier, uh, that kind of attitude with music, that sort of, you know, that energy and that passion that comes from earlier. And once I started listening to the pretty things and the kinks and, and all of that sort of thing, that was it. You know, that that was where I wanted to be, that sort of music. So, yeah, I guess they were my biggest influences, those people, Bruce mm-hmm. and Billy and, and Russ Wilkins. Yes, absolutely. I mean, because coming from the depths of East Anglia, the countryside of village life, we didn't really have much of a cultural scene. I mean, there was like a bit of, you know, rock and rock and rock and heavy metal and status quo were the main band yeah. and, and bands like that. But we didn't really, I mean, culturally, you know, it is a little bit desolate and it's a bit behind the times. So what is the Medway scene like of, of North Kent? I mean, just kind of, are you able to explain what this this kind of very sort of excitable and sort of dynamic um yeah place it was i think it was it's quite uh, it's a, essentially chatham's a dockyard town so and rochester's sort of the posh bit that's on the side of that and i think um the dockyard when it closed it became a really rundown sort of desolate place and I, and I don't know those kind of rundown places tend to breed creative people for some reason. I, I don't know, and I, and I think that might have something to do with it. Um, yes. I wouldn't have said there was a scene exactly. Well, there was a few places to play, sort of pubs. Uh, it was quite a violent time. You know, there were skinheads and mods and punks and all that kind of cultural clash that was going on. And everyone who looked different to you, uh, well, if you looked different to anybody else, you used to tend to get a kick in. And it was it was very much like that. And I, I think you know it that that's what made it sort of such a desperate sort of passionate musical place with all of these subcultures going on, all sort of fighting each other and you know and nobody having any money and and all of that sort of thing and i think it just became quite creative from that yes because it actually... probably goes back a lot longer than than i've been alive i mean i'm sure there were there was music in in medway before then 
<clears throat> but uh, you know, but there still aren't any. I mean, our best place to play now is closing down. We just heard, um, which is the function rooms, and that's they've just been given notice to move on. Right. So that's another death nail in the in the uh, the music scene for around here because that was a really cracking place to play, <laughs> and it's also the house of the recording studio where most of the bands around here have recorded over the years. So that's all got to go as well. Crikey. So that was a massive blow for us. Yeah, it really is terrible. Yeah, I mean, we're cause... playing there next week <laughs> in the prisoners, sort of like for a 40th anniversary of our first album. Yes, and uh, that's pretty much one of the last things that's going to go on there. God, that's quite a moment, yeah, isn't it? Shut. It's uh, yes, I know yeah, they're sort terrible. of every city, and actually, it's not just in the UK actually, because I talk to a lot of people from you know American you know bands who are also having venues sort of closed and in very few places, you know, a lot yeah. less places to play. So it's it is kind of everyone always thinks because you know it's quite a few in Norwich just struggling a bit, and they they said, oh my god, but it's like yeah, Manchester's the same, and probably lots of cities are having those kind of issues at the moment with scenes. Um, yes, it's a bit grim. Yeah, I mean, we noticed because we used to tour in Germany and France a lot um, years ago and and it, there were some great places to play there I mean I think there's still some pretty good places to play and, and still a good music culture out there they people tend to like live music but we noticed that you know some of these places that we'd been playing for a long time they they get you on earlier and earlier and earlier and then get you out so that they could put their D, the DJs on so, so everyone had to clear out of the venue get rid of the band and all the people that had come to see the bands sort of by 10 11 o'clock and then the you know you'd have a massive queue around the corner for for the DJs club night that was going on there and I, and I think maybe it's just cheaper to run things like that and much easier you don't have all the hassle of bands and and all that sort of thing and I, th I think that that's really destroying the live music culture because people would rather have something easy going on that they, you know, a couple of bounces on the door, a DJ thing, and then you don't have to bother about, you know, music like, you know, I don't know what live music thing, and yeah. it's a shame. But but that's the same everywhere. Yes, this is definitely yeah, it true. Really actually. is. I think the only the only real the only place that seems to be pretty good for our kind of music is Spain at the moment. <laughs> they still have some good sort of rock and roll festivals, and and you can still tour in Spain and play some great places. Although they make you go on about one o'clock in the morning for some reason. Yes, <laughs> I was I was going to say I was going to think you were going to say Spain for some reason. I seem to. Either people are playing there or have gone and relocated to Spain or Portugal because they're saying, oh, yeah, you can just about make a living from living out here at the moment. So, um, and I guess the weather's yeah. good. So, um, yeah, so that's all good. So, yes, look, so, sure. so 79, you went to see the jam with the, the Cure supporting, good Bill. But then yeah. when did you pick up a guitar and start thinking, right, I'm not going to just be a punter, I want to be on the stage? The, fir the first... Uh, what the thing that made me want to be in a band rather than be in the audience was um, there's a there's a really awful shopping centre in Chatham called the Pentagon, and uh, I just happened to be walking through there one day when I was probably 15, maybe just about 15 or, or something like that, and there was a band playing. They were called Wipeout, and um, they were like an R&B sort of blues brothersy kind of a, a band and I thought blimey that you know and they were brilliant I thought they were really good and I was watching that thinking cool that's you know I wouldn't mind some of that and then standing next to me was a bloke from school Alan Crockford and we we turned to each other and said we should be in a band this is great we, we need to do that and that's how it all started so he he had a guitar um 
and I had a I got a bass guitar and we used to go around each other's houses and and play sort of Stranglers covers and you know a few punk things and a bit of R&B and that kind of thing and and it, we weren't really it wasn't really going anywhere and then we said why don't we try swapping instruments so he gave me his guitar and I gave him the bass and uh, we found a drummer and I as soon as I got a guitar I realized that I could write my own songs whereas right. I, I hadn't even thought about it before so it was just that that catalyst, I guess, of getting hold of a guitar and, and having that whole a whole different world open up for me. And, and I thought, yeah. And, I, and then I started writing songs, and then that was it, really. God. The next year after that, the prisoners were formed, and you know, 15, 16, off we went, um, playing gigs in Belgium and France and Germany. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was good. Cause I, I just so that of... was the catalyst, just just seeing an R&B band in the chat in Chatham in the Pendergast <laughs> Centre. <laughs> you, you had your sort of, I don't know, Lennon-McCartney, you know, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, Morrissey and Marr moment with your, um, with Alan Crockford. That's amazing. That's... Exactly, yeah. I mean, we weren't in the same class or anything at school, but I recognised him um, as someone who looked a bit odd like myself. Um, he was wearing white socks and, you know, probably... DMs or something, and I thought he had sort of long hair, and I thought, yeah, yeah, let's have a go, let's do that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and we're, we're still playing together now. This is, I know, it's probably longer than most people's marriages, really. But then, because '79, <laughs> Thatcher gets in, and then you know we have that kind of the the Falklands and the miners' strike and the Greenham Common and you know nuclear, yeah. the nuclear. Well, what was it like, you know, in the early '80s? Because this is where the band starts, and obviously we'd had punk and then post-punk, and then there was this kind of a bit of a transition with the sort of club and and the club land of new romantics and that kind of I don't know the mm. soft cells started to appear didn't they and abc started to appear and then this new paisley scene yeah. and goth so what was did you did as, as a sort of creating the band did you think actually this is going to be our sound did that come straight away we just yeah we just wanted to i mean we started off playing a few covers as every band does i guess with a couple of my songs chucked in and we were sort of playing kinks kind of stuff or pretty thing songs that kind of early earlyish sub to mid 60s stuff and um and my songs were sort of a little bit in that in that vein and it wasn't really till we got um we'd been playing for a couple of years and it just sort of i don't know it was okay um but then we um the drummer Johnny said, "I've got this mate who plays the organ, and because we really like the small faces, and, and you know, and, and I think that we couldn't be anything like that without a Hammond organ player." So James Taylor joined the band in 1982, something right. like that, and that changed that changed everything. I could imagine because having that Hammond a made us different, I guess. Um, and B, it, as a songwriter, it just gave me so much more scope. Um, to, you know, and, and I, like, I like instrumentals as well, and you can't really play instrumentals as a three-piece without without a keyboard. So um, it enabled us to, you know, to enable me to write better songs, uh, more crafted stuff, and some instrumentals, and that that is when it really kicked off. But before that, as a three-piece, we were just we were nothing special, I don't think. No, yeah, was James at that stage always? You know, was he? Like one of those people you think, my God, he's he's a really good musician. Had he learned how to do it all by that? Well, not all of it, but quite a lot I of think, it. I think he'd had, 
Uh, he'd had some some. Le- I'm not sure really. He'd had some lessons. We we go- I remember we gave him a load of records and said, "Listen to this and and play like this," <laughs> so, and he very very quickly did. So he was he's obviously very very gifted. Uh, and picks things up really, really quickly. I mean, first of all, he had a little Casio keyboard, and and he had it going through a high watt amp, really distorted, and it and it sounded great. <laughs> but it was nothing like a Hammond. Yes. It wasn't for a couple of years where we actually got, you know, we had enough money where he could get a Hammond, and that, you know, then again, that sort of uh, that that brought us on a lot, lot more as well. When you got a proper Hammond, we realised how beautiful that instrument is. Yes. And how heavy it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was, a, it around I think it was a band but, called the. Yeah, Dim- so there was there was a few different a few different stages of sort of development of that band, I think. But I mean, it's it's easy to forget that we were really really young, sort of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, when the prisons were going. So we were, you know, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We were just we were having a bit of a laugh and, um, you know, just just playing. Yes. Without really even thinking about it, not not having any aspirations. I mean, the, the music press didn't like us because they said we were revivalist, which we weren't at all. Um, what we thought we were doing, what we, just what we wanted to do. We weren't trying to copy anyone. We, were, we we thought we had our own sound. But of course, all the bands that you mentioned earlier, that you know, all the neo romantic stuff and all that was in the chart then, and. And that's that's what people thought was modern music, and they just saw us as going backwards, not forwards. But I I, I disagreed, and I, and I think, you know, only look look a few years after the prisoners split up, when you had all that Manchester thing come along, and the Charlatans and the Stone Roses and all of that. That that proves. I mean, a lot of those people were in our audiences. Yes. You know, when we were supposedly unfashionable, but then it became super fashionable after that, after we'd split up. <laughs> yeah, because um, cause a few years ago I did an interview with a guy called, is it Christian Paris, who, who ran this thing called Alice in Wonderland, which is a scene that I was oh, not... Oh, we've played there, yeah. I was not, I have to confess, really that familiar with that whole new Paisley scene. I knew some of the bands, but not the depth. And then there was another guy who did the NME cassette, or worked for the NME, Neil Taylor, who did a book called C86 all that and um and he's got a chapter uh-huh. on this kind of whole kind of i suppose the the slightly modish sound because there were certain bands at that stage that you probably you must you must eventually got to know but like the vips and merton parkers and people like that were they bands that you became familiar with no i didn't like any of that that mod revival 79 thing i thought that was really weedy and it wasn't what we wanted to be like at all. It's, it's. I think because um, you know this whole mod thing, and and people always want to put a label on you, and they always want to put you in a in a in a box somewhere where you know it's easy for them to label you and and, and say what kind of music you are. But we we dressed pretty sixties, and all all our stuff was from charity shops. But um, we were never a mod band. We never associated with that, especially not that 79 revival. Then we came a bit later after that, but they, yes. they were always like the Lambrettas and the Merton Parkers and all those. I didn't really know their stuff much, but I thought it was pretty rubbish, to be honest. Um, we yes. were, I thought we were much better than that. But um, yeah, and then there, I know what you did, that sort of psychedelic scene thing that came along as well. I'm not sure when that was. Um, that Alice in Wonderland thing, and I know I know we did play a, ven- a venue called Alice in Wonderland or something like that, Doctor and the Medics, yes. and all that sort of thing. But we never felt like a part of a scene at all. I think we were just young lads having a drink, having a laugh, and, 
and playing what we wanted to do. I think we were quite focused, were quite anal really about what we wanted to be like. And um, we certainly weren't part of any scene. And I, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we never never got anywhere because we we, we should never listen to anyone who tried to try try to sort of steer us in a direction we always you know rallied against that yes so anyone trying to give us any advice or whatever <laughs> we do the opposite yeah well that's <laughs> Which is quite funny but we were kids you know we were just kids well, it was, it was kind of funny because with that sort of indie scene that came a bit later, no one wanted to be kind of associated with pigeonhole at the time, but now exactly. probably thinking... No, no band does. No band wants to be labelled like that. It's just, you know, because it really restricts, you know... I mean, we when we signed to Stiff, or, uh, it was a subsidiary of Stiff called Countdown to do our last album, the fourth one. Yes. They were very heavily associated with the mod scene. And... Uh, it was remarkable how our, a lot of our following stopped coming to see us play and loads and loads of mods started started coming to see our gigs, but they weren't really interested in in our music. A few, a few were, obviously, but they were mainly interested in when we got off stage and they could put the disco on. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's part of their scene. You know, it's great. I mean, it's, it's you know, they're all like-minded people who like a certain type of thing, but... To me, a live band is is all inclusive. You know, it shouldn't be exclusive. And as soon as you put a label on something, it it becomes exclusive. And I I don't like that at all. And it certainly put a lot of our following off because in the early days we used to play with loads of rockabilly bands like Stingrays and X Men and the Tall Boys and and all those sort of thing. And I, we had a manager for a little while who, who was manager of the Meteors, and they were one of the first sort of psychabilly bands. And People used to turn up to our gigs and think, what are you playing with these lot for? You know, massive quiffs, tattoos, and big rucks in front of the stage. And, and it was, we, we play with anyone. You know, we're not, you know, we're not a mod band. We're not a, anything. We're just a band. And, you know, we shared some of that sort of passion and rawness that, that some of those bands, or a totally different sort of music, but it all kind of fitted in. It was just a live, live music thing. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, it's quite good. Well, it was kind of interesting because I, I sort of remember that was a very tribal time because I, I remember sort of you couldn't admit to liking something like the beat or mod music because because the the status quo fans would beat you up basically. That was it. You know, they, they <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you know, because it was a real, you know, it was like motorbike, you know, motorbikes, mopeds and you know, 50cc 50 50cc 50 mm. to 250s, if you're lucky and being a bit more greasy. Um, you know, it was that kind of world that I grew up in. So so mm. mod music was definitely not something that you could sort of pretend to yeah. or like. So um, so I was amazed that you had a bill that, you know, included Psychobilly as well as your band. Cause, um, cause I know, it, it's really interesting. Amazing. <laughs> that, that, Listen, that, the, well, I've just had a beep come on my, on my phone oh. telling me the battery's about to... So what was the... When did you... From right starting to write songs, when did you first go in the studio? Because the first release was that about eighty. Your first album was A Taste of Pink, wasn't it? That's right, eighty-two. Yeah, we'd been we'd done a few demos uh, when we were a three-piece in, in nineteen eighty in in a little studio in Rochester. Um, we did a few songs there, and a few of those are on are on on the album. But it it was when James joined. Around about that time is when I started writing some much better songs. Then, so but that was the. It, ironically, that album, the taste, of, the taste of pink, was supposed to be like a farewell thing. We were going to split up, right? Because James went to university 
um, and he, and so the band was no, that was it. It was the end of the band because we didn't want to carry on without him. And uh, so we thought, well, we borrowed some money from a, uh, a friend of ours to, a, to to pay for two days in the studio in Herne Bay, and, and that's where we recorded a Taste of Pink pretty much live. Um, and so we recorded that, and and we we printed 500 copies of that, and we used to take them up to London uh, to try and do sale or return in some of those um, record shops in Camden, Rock On and Rocks Off. Yes. Um, and and yeah, so we were always travelling up up to town, you know, selling five records at a time. And then about a week later, James rang me up and said, "I hate university. Can I come back and can we start the band up again?" So I, yeah, so that was brilliant news. Yes. <laughs> so uh, he was yeah. So we only split up for a week, and then he he came back, and then then off we went. Blimey! And funnily enough, the record really took off, and some of those record shops were selling loads of copies of it, and and then Rough Trade picked up on it and started distributing it for us, and then we signed to Big Beat for the second album. Yeah. So yeah, it really it really took off quite quickly, but originally that was just supposed to be a a, a farewell record, just as a, a little bit of a, a you know. A, a memento of our our little time together. Yes, <laughs> um, so it's funny how things turn out. Like it's that. very strange because because Big Beat is part of Ace Records, isn't it? So did you? Was That's it, right. Yeah. Was it through the the sales or the, the interest of a taste of pink that they you came on their radar? I think one of the shops in Camden. I think it was uh, Rock On. I think it was. I think that was owned by Ted Carroll. Right. Who was part one of the owners of, of Ace Records. So I think that's where he first became aware of us, sort of selling selling our records for us in in the shop. And uh, so then they, I think they they put a gig on in St Albans. I think they called it "Get Me to the World on Time" or something. There's quite a lot of bands, some of the psychobilly bands that they already had on their label, and the, the Milkshakes as well from from round here. And we played at that. And I remember at that gig, well, there was a riot afterwards. I can't remember what happened, but. There was some big fight and some riot. They 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 said we want to sign you at that gig. So, so that's how that happened. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> that is that's such an amazing thing. So on the second album, were you produced by a guy called was it Phil Chevron? Phil Chevron. Yeah, he was in the Pogues. He was the guitar player of the Pogues. He's sadly passed away now. But yeah, so that was that was big beats. Um, wanted to make us a little bit more commercial. Um, so they they hired Phil to to do the produ- production on it, but that didn't really work out too well for us. Why was because that? We didn't really like the record. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't like it. it was, I mean, it sounds awful, doesn't it? But um, it, as yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier that we seemed to do the opposite to what anyone wanted us to do. It was like I don't know, some kind of built-in sort of anti attitude that we had and, and Phil came I mean, he was a lovely bloke he really was and he tried very hard and but we made this record and he wouldn't let us be a part of the mixing right and I, that really got our backs up but I mean I having produced albums for bands myself I totally understand where he's coming from you don't want loads of people with different opinions you never get anything done it's better if someone just does it but and unfortunately he just did it and we didn't like it so that was a real shame. Yes, awkward so we moment. Sort of parted ways. We parted ways with with Big Beat after that because yeah, we thought no, that's not doesn't sound like us. 
No. And it no. didn't really. It, it was a bit sort of polished and it didn't capture what we thought we were about. Yes. So when you, because I mean, you're, you're, you know, because I haven't done this show for quite a while, you know, most bands have this a great five year narrative of, you know, getting together and have that 12 month honeymoon period. And, and sometimes, you know, the John Peel show was the sort of giving people that little bit more exposure than the first single, the first album. Mm. You know, sometimes a John Peel yeah. session, you know, going around the countryside, country, country in a van, you know, doing all the gigs around every city. And then the second album, third, possibly. But you were really prolific in this kind of up to 86. You were doing virtually, um, well, once you got going, sort of an album a year, because you followed this up quite quickly with the, the last four fathers, didn't you? The last four fathers was, yeah, the year after. We did, we did. Uh, 82 was A Taste of Pink, 83, The Wiser Miser, The Melzer, and then 84 was, we went back in the studio ourselves um, and did our own album again, uh, which I think is certainly my favourite one, the third one. Right. And uh, yes, and then I think we had a year's gap between that and the last one. Was it, were you much more of a touring band at this stage to keep it going? We were playing all the time. I, I think I was we were talking about it the other night. I think we we were playing over two hundred gigs a year at that time. Um, we were playing every every week. We were we we would tour uh, Germany or France or or wherever or the UK. We did loads of gigs in the UK, up and down the motorway in the van, and uh, played in Scotland loads of times. Yeah, we were always playing, always. Amazing, because I, I, I did all four of us. Because yeah. having spoke again, you know, a lot of bands that Europe gig, you know, going around Europe, sort of like doing like twenty nine or I don't know twenty eight gigs in about thirty days is just you know keeps the band going yeah. for another. It's almost like okay, we've got some money in the bank, not a lot, but you know, it'll be enough to us for us to. <laughs> yeah, certainly not a lot. <laughs> not a lot, but you know, no, we've sold we've sold some money in it. No. we've sold some CDs, loose T shirts, so now we can just about keep yeah. going for another six months. So. It's pretty hand-to-mouth stuff. Look at it was it, it is. I mean, the, the, you know, certainly the way we used to look at the midweek gigs was, you know, if we don't get paid, at least they're putting us up somewhere, so we don't have to pay for accommodation. Or, right. You know, they're buying us dinner, or or we, there's a few beers in it. So, you know, if if we were playing some dive in the middle of nowhere on a Tuesday night and there was hardly anyone there, we wouldn't get paid anything, but at least we wouldn't have to pay out anything. <laughs> so it, that was, that's the way touring used to work. It probably still does. Yes. I, mean, I, don't, I don't tour anymore. It's just too, too much hard work. But, uh, yeah, there's, you, there, you've got to play somewhere on a Monday or Tuesday, and they're normally pretty rough, tough gigs. You know, it's just something that you've got to do because it saves you the money on the hotel. <laughs> yeah. And did you, I mean, at that stage, I mean, you know, the, the 80s is trundling on very quickly here and things are changing and then... You know, I don't know. There was mm. there was a lot of new music scenes going on, and then sort of eighty three bands like the Smiths came along, and then there's things like Red Wedge. Did you, as a sort of the songwriter and and um, you know, like being in the band, did did you at all sort of ha- get influenced by other things happening around you, or were you sort of keeping it quite, I don't know, uh, I, tight? I with we were, I think we were quite. Yeah, we were quite insular, insular, I think. It was, I wasn't, you know, a lot of people say, oh, did you know this band or that band or, you know, what what did you think of this? And I've never really been, well, not not interested sounds a bit disrespectful, but I've never really been um, that bothered about other people's music. You know, if I see a band and I like it, great, but I don't, 
I'm not really a big record collector. Um, I don't listen to a lot of music. I, yes. I found it just quite nice just to do my own thing, um, which sort of sounds a bit odd and a bit anal maybe, but that, that's, you know, I, I like making music. I could not like, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously influenced by stuff, but my my influences are back in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and I've not really listened to a lot of music since then. Yes. I mean, one band that I sort of got introduced to during that 80s period was the action gives of Paul Weller, and actually oh, yeah. Phil Collins as well. Were bands like that kind of had a bit an impact on your sort of, you know, musical direction at all? I mean, I've heard I've heard an album by The Action. I haven't got one, but I've I've heard it played at various gigs or or whatever songs of theirs that have been played, and they they sound like a really good band. But you know, I'm not interested enough to to want to you know get any closer to it than that. Really, it's just sort of something nice that comes on on the you know through the speakers every now and again. But no, I mean, we did play a gig with the with The Action. Uh, in another band that I, I was in called the Solar Flares, we, we supported them one night, but I, I don't think we ever bother watching them, to be honest. <laughs> That's quite cool, <laughs> isn't it, actually? Yes. I think the only band, the only band I, I really liked um, that we supported, that I, that I stayed to watch most nights, was the Ramones. We did a UK tour with them in 1986, and, you know, I liked them anyway from, from you know, from growing up, but they were just mind-blowing live and i you know so we supported them every night got spat on every single night and bottles thrown at us and all that sort of thing and then but you know that when they came on i used to just go into the audience and just watch them and they were just amazing yes absolutely did you ever tour america or do any dates in america or did that never never ever played in america in my band no i've played in lots of other people's bands or guest in playing a bit of guitar i play in an american band at the moment called the woggles because um, sadly their guitar play- i mean they've, they've been really good friends over the years we've bumped into them on on various tours in europe but their guitar player passed away a few years ago and they asked me, would I step in if they did a European tour, which I did um, a few years ago. Yes. And it, we all loved it so much. And they, I, I now play in the band most of the time, so I'm sort of flitting back to, to and from America. And she's going back over to tour the West Coast with them uh, next week, in the next week. Blimey, the Woggles. Straight, straight after the Prisoners gig. Yeah, they're, they're a great sort of garagey rock and roll band. Um, good fun they put on a really good show and you know it's just it's really good yeah we're good mates excellent this is so good so when you got to sort of 85 86 you were you signed at this stage to stiff records was that going to be in from in from the cold in from the cold was uh it was it was a a label called countdown which was run by um eddie pillar and he got a deal with Dave Robinson at Stiff to, to put Countdown out as a subsidiary of Stiff. So we signed with Countdown. Yes. But it essentially came out via Stiff. But unfortunately, with that record, um, that was another one that we didn't particularly enjoy making either um, because we had a, a producer called Troy Tate, who was an, another smashing fellow, really good. And he used to be in a band called The Teardrop Explodes. Oh, yes. But he'd never seen, he'd never seen the prisoners play. And, and uh, he was employed to produce our album, and he obviously did what he thought was right. But it, again, it was it didn't sound anything like us. So 
we didn't like that. But, and then shortly after that record was released, Stiff went bankrupt. So that was the end of that. God. And it was at that point where we decided, well, we might as well call it a day because I'm you know, getting a bit fed up with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does happen, doesn't it? It's, it's that thing, isn't it? Everyone's... Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like the band was okay. It wasn't the dynamics of the band. It was just the fact that, um, yes, it wasn't, it wasn't quite sort of taken to the next stage, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and, and and that that very fact of taking it to the next stage was also a contentious issue for us as well, because I think some of us wanted to do that and others didn't particularly, weren't that bothered about, you know, we didn't, I think I, I had a glimpse of, of what might be necessary in order to take it to the next stage, and I, I didn't really like what I saw, you know, it was the amount of gigs the, our agent used to send us all over Europe. We played one gig in on the east coast of uh, Italy in Rimini, and then our next gig was in London the next night. It was as if, you know, this is what we've got to do uh, on our tours, is travel hundreds and hundreds of miles, in, you know, jumping in the van straight after the gig and driving all day and most of the night to get to the next one. And You know, it was just, in the end, I had, I had, had enough of it, to be honest. And the fact that the record that we just made, I didn't really like it much. Then the record company went bankrupt, and I thought, well, we did have discussions about, well, what are we going to do next? And, and I think me and Alan decided, well, nothing. I don't think we'll do anything. Nothing. So I've had enough of it now. Yes, that's uh, fair enough. James, James went on to form the James Taylor Quartet, and he did really, really well. So that's brilliant. I know. That was, you know, that was his kind of little thing. Did you, I mean, did you then sort of at that stage, did music just get put in the cupboard, so to speak, the guitar, the stuff, and you just had to get on with the rest of your life at this stage for a bit. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I decided that was it. I didn't want to play anymore. Um, I joined the fire service and I started a 30-year career there. And um, two years later, uh, I'd been in the fire brigade for a couple of years. Alan, Alan and Wolf, who was the, they, they were both in the James Taylor Quartet, and, but they they'd parted ways, and I think James had got a new band um, to play in the, in JTQ. So Alan and Wolf were at a, Wolf was the in the dag in the Daggermen, which was James's brother's band, Dave Taylor. Yes. So and, and they want they said, come on, you know, I know you've got a job, but let's just do let's do an album um, for a laugh and, and play a few gigs and do it as a hobby. And that was when we formed the Prime Movers. And uh, and that's the way it's been ever since. So it's been something that you know we've been lucky enough to to still be playing. Sort of you know 35 years later, still playing what we want to play. Um, you know, people still want to hear it. God, that's reason, fantastic. Which is you know, <laughs> which is yes. Uh, but it's been a fantastic hobby for me. You know, I think creatively, there's been no pressures on me whatsoever. Um, there's no one telling us we've got to do this, we've got to do that, we've got to play here, you've got to say this, you've got to wear this, which is what it was like in the in the 80s. Yes. And uh, it's just been completely on on our own terms. You know, someone will, will message us now. It's great with the internet, isn't it? So you, you, people can get in touch and say, you know, do you want to play this uh, this tour or this festival? And, and we say yes or no. And it's... Um, it's been fantastic. We've been really lucky. It does make life. I know actually a lot of musicians from that period, from whatever back, you know, whatever genre, you know, type of music, they just quite enjoy the relaxed atmosphere of not having to, um, yes, 
yeah, it's just like it is a hobby and it's just let's have fun and if it's not fun, let's I'm not going to do it. So it's like, yeah, exactly. it's, it's a bit like that. But yeah, the, the, but then the prisoners are sort of, you know, do come back and do live gigs, don't you? We haven't played for 21 years, um, but this year is the 40th anniversary of the first album. And, right. Uh, we were... We were round the corner in the local club um, called the Billabong Club, which is underneath the function rooms, that is, which is closing down, sadly, um, as I talked about earlier. And there was a, a friend of ours band were playing down there, and we all happened to be in the same room. Now, bear in mind that Johnny, the drummer, moved away to Hertfordshire years ago, and we, he's not been in a band since The Prisoners. So I hardly... I mean, pops up now and again, he'll come down or, or whatever and whatever drink, but... He, you don't see him from one year to the next. Uh, but he came down and he was there and James was, was there and Alan was there and I, and I happened to be in the audience. And after the band finished, they said, people were shouting, come on, all the prisoners are here, why don't you get up and play a couple of songs? Right. And, uh, you know, we'd all had a few drinks and I, we got up and I thought, blimey, this sounds good. Uh, I'd forgotten how good it was, you know, because obviously we've been playing... In, in bands ever since but to play with that original lineup again for the first time in 21 years it felt like something special so we sort of decided well why don't we do a proper gig then you know just to, to celebrate the, um, the 40th anniversary of the first album let's just put a gig on so we announced that we were doing a gig on the friday the first of december and that it took two hours to sell that out um, once people decided that it was actually true and not, <laughs> not some kind of scam. Yes. <laughs> so we put a second night on on the Saturday and that sold out in seven minutes. Wowzer. Um, so, so then we had to add the Thursday. That sold out in half an hour. So we added the Wednesday. So it's, it's turned from one night of celebration of the album to four nights, that's which very, is great. Well, that's like a, a yeah. Vegas residency, really, isn't it? That's that's good enough, you know. It's which is kind of what you want, really, because you don't have to do anything, do you? Just put you know set the gear up on the first night and then just come back and do it again. Exactly. Yeah. That's really that's, that's handy. what we thought. I mean, there's been a lot of those people coming from all over the world to these gigs as well, you know. Someone put something on Facebook saying, you know, let, let's find out who's coming from the furthest. And people say, well, I'm coming from New Zealand. I'm coming from Australia. Someone's from Canada, some, you know, from all over the place. A few people from America are coming. Poor wow. Rochester's not going to know what's hit it. No, that's, that's <laughs> absolutely amazing. But then, then at the end of that week, you're going to be finding yourself in America with the Woggles, which is quite... Exactly, quite, yeah. Yeah, that's quite a schedule, <laughs> isn't it? That's amazing. You probably never, it well, is, you, you yeah. know, it's it's um, and it's interesting because you've got members of the. I just look in the Pandoras who I've interviewed, Melanie, um, from that band. Oh yeah, a few years ago. So it's quite yeah. The Wog the Woggles yeah. are quite a band, aren't they? They are. They've been they've been going not quite as long as the Prisoners, but I think they must have started in the early nineties, maybe. Right. Um, but, but yeah, so they. I mean, we. The first time I met them was, a, oh, it must have been about 2000 or something, and uh, my band, the Solar Flares, was playing a gig in, a couple of gigs in Germany, and they turned up as the support band. Never heard of them, never met them before. They went on stage, and I'm not, I'm not kidding you, they blew us away that night. They, I, they were phenomenal. I thought, Jesus. And they were supposed to be supporting us 
in Frankfurt the following evening and I said, no way, we're going on first tomorrow. I'm not following that again. <laughs> and uh, we, stayed, we stayed really good mates ever since. In fact, when, because uh, I played bass with Billy Childish in the Buff Medways for a little while. Yes. And uh, when that finished, um, the drummer of the Woggles, Dan, uh, was over from America visiting some friends and he said, I hear you're not in a band anymore. And I said, well, no, I'm not. And he said, right, we're going to be in a band. So uh, Dan, the drummer, and Patrick, their bass player, um, formed with me the uh, Graham Day and the Jailers. Right. Which, you know, is a band that we've been playing. We've done three albums. We have a new album coming out early next year. Um, so, yeah, it's all sort of um, incestuous in a way, all intermingled. <laughs> We're all in each other's bands. But, yeah, so we've, you know, we've been very close over the years. So... You know, but the Woggles was as as a just from a purely guitar playing performance standpoint. That is the band that I always wanted to be in. When I was, as soon as I saw them, I thought, wow. You know, they might have the best songs in the world, although they have got some really good songs. But they are, in terms of putting on a show and energy and just the kind of music that I really like, that sort of garagey sort of punk stuff. I thought they were mind-blowing. And so to be in them now as their guitarist is, is a real honour for me. Blimey, that is, that is nice. Because actually on that your solo albums with Graham Day and the Jailers, this is all on the Damaged Goods, uh, Damaged Goods label, that's isn't right, it? Yeah. So that's right, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, is that Ian from that label who, who runs Ian that? Ian Damaged, yeah, Ian Ballinger, yeah. God, so that's... Yeah, uh... he runs that. Yeah, so yeah, we, have a, we do have a new album. We recorded it at Ranscombe which is the studio um, in the function rooms building that I, I told you about that's been forced to close. So Jim's yeah. got to relocate. And actually, right back to the beginning of our chat, when I said to you about the, the moment of inspiration, when I saw the band playing in the Pentagon Centre, which made me want to be in a band, Jim yeah. Riley was the singer of that band, Wipeout. Okay. So and it all comes full circle. So he's now, the, he runs the studio that we've made all our albums in over the years. So... You know, he's got to relocate as well. Blimey, that's not, that's a bit annoying. I have to say, it's kind of a bit of a holistic kind of love fest, this, isn't it, your musical career? It's like there's so many kind of um, connections and and sort of things joining up in later life. It's quite bizarre. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's good that it's all happened. It's it's good it's happened while you're still in your sort of 50s rather than a bit later, because at least you've got a few more decades to sort of keep on making these things. (laughs) So on the on the sort of on the writing, I've so, never been so busy. No, and so on the writing front, did that when you put that to one side and then think, actually, I'm going to pick it up again with your solo stuff? Did it come together quite, kind of smoothly? I, I no, I, I found it quite difficult because I'm not I'm not a person who's ever um, sat and thought, all oh, right, I'll play the guitar and I'll write a song now. I never ever do that. Whether it's partly lazy or partly motivation i'm not sure what it is but i need i need a goal i need so when when dan said to me right we're going to form graham day and the jailers and then we're going to come over from america and record an album i thought oh i better write one then right so, uh, but it was it was the feeling of right they're coming over in three months time i need to write this album um i had a few ideas kicking about but it, it's i need that spark i need something to say right i've got a deadline now I'm, i've got to get on with it and once I, you know, I normally write a couple of 
pretty rubbish songs. And I think, oh, I think I've done that before. I'm not quite sure I've heard that before. And then all of a sudden it clicks into place and, I, and I, I'm quite fast after that. Once I get motivated, I can normally write sort of four or five songs in a week. And then oh, apart from the lyrics, I always struggle with the lyrics because, you know, what does a, what does a man in his 50s write, write about these days? <laughs> yes. You know, oh, where, where, where am I going on my holidays? You know, who wants to hear any, any of that sort of happy stuff when you're content and you're settled? You know, I, all my sort of songs when I was young were about being angry and yes. relationships breaking down and, and, you know, all that sort of real angsty stuff but you know it's, i find lyrics quite difficult now because i i don't want to write about politics i don't want to write about things like that i just find that all a bit too cheesy yes and i certainly don't want to sing songs about you know driving in a car and all that all that rubbish rock and roll kind of lyrics <laughs> so I, I sort of find that i have to search back in the archives for funny stories or things that have happened to us or you know try and find some humor in, in in the misery of, of being in a band and I try and write about that sort of thing, really. Indeed. That, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Um, we were having problems, well, I was, with my credit limit on Skype. But that's a long and boring story, which I won't go into, but that's why that's slightly abruptly finished. But it was, um, yes, just life. Anyway, a massive thank you to Graham Day for giving me the time for that interview with the prisoners and also his uh, life in Woggle as well. So if you want to find out any more information, I'd go to the Facebook pages and, um, yes, become a friend or at least join. So this has been the C86 Show. I'm David East, so if you want to contact us, me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Have a great week. Stay safe.